Have you seen any good movies lately? Black Panther. Black Panther? Oh, man. I, I yes. <laughs> Saw that a couple weeks ago. It was great. Um, you know, Wrinkle in Time just came out. I know that a lot of people were kind of disappointed in it. You liked it? Awesome. Great. So, all right. So, um, some people have seen these new movies. Others may have not. Um, so, regardless of whether or not the person next to you has seen it, go ahead and turn to them and tell them the ending of the movie. Ready, set. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I, there was a lot of anxiety just then and, like, some appalled faces. Um, so, so I, I love movies, TV shows, um, and I'm kind of a nerd. I love not only watching them, but afterwards going and, and reading and watching interviews, reading reviews, on and on. This is just stuff that I love to do. But something that always comes up um, in listening to interviews or, or reading different articles about them is this, this big term, spoiler alert. And it's always in all caps. And it's always, do not keep reading unless, you know, spoiler alerts, right? Um, we're obsessed with this. Have you ever been at, at, like, a social gathering, and you're telling someone about a movie that you just saw, and then, like, out of nowhere, like, someone swoops in and is like, whoa, stop, like, spoiler alert, don't keep telling. Like, we are obsessed with this stuff. Um, so I was reading an article about this a little while back, um, and it, it says, one of our favorite parts of a good story is the ending. And we go through great lengths just to avoid overhearing the ending of a movie that we haven't seen or a book that we haven't read. And when we unfortunately do overhear it, we feel that our experience has now been spoiled. Right? We're, we're serious about this stuff. But what was interesting, the article went on uh, to reference this interesting study that had been done. So they, the participants of the study, they told them 12 different stories. Six of them they gave a little kind of teaser intro, like, here's what the story's about, and, and honestly kind of spoiled what the ending of the story was going to be. They kind of said, here's what it's going to be, so on, and then they told them the story. The other six stories that the participants heard, they just told them, kind of a cold reading, cold, cold uh, experience. But what they found afterwards, they asked the, the uh, participants what their experience was and, and how they liked it. They found that the participants preferred the spoiled versions to the unspoiled ones. What? Right? And so the conclusion they came to was that knowing the ending of the story before you read it doesn't actually hurt the experience of the story. It actually makes you enjoy the story more. And so this upends our whole notion of spoiler alerts. Right? I think it also reveals why so many of us have favorite movies and books that we go back to again and again and again. It's because we know the ending that we go back to it. Because we love that part when, oh, you know, here it comes. And then whatever the spoiler would have been, we, we know it and we love it. Endings matter. They change our entire experience of a story. The ending of a story actually determines whether it's a tragedy or a comedy, right? This is Shakespeare. Like, tragedy, Shakespearean tragedies and comedies aren't differentiated because one of them makes you laugh and the other one makes you cry. Uh, it's differentiated on whether or not everyone dies in the end. <laughs> if, if, or if they get married at the end. Like, those are the two alternatives. Like, you know, one's a comedy, one's a tragedy. That's, that's how you, it's the ending that determines it. Um, uh, endings have the potential to transform our entire understanding of a story. Uh, that you look back and reconsider the whole thing. Like, 
the sixth sense, if you've seen that one. Um, or all kinds of movies that have come out recently that love this twist ending, right? And makes you go, whoa, I gotta watch the whole thing again. Everything means something different now, right? Endings matter. They recall the beginning and the middle and tie everything together at the end. So our text today is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. So if you have a Bible or you want to turn there, go ahead. Um, after six months of trekking through the New City Catechism, we are here towards the end. Um, and so we'll be reading Revelation 21, and I'm going to go ahead and issue a spoiler alert. <laughs> because this passage is a great, big, eternal spoiler. But I want to make the case today that knowing the ending of the story might actually transform our whole understanding of the story. Not just of how we read the Bible, but how we live our lives. And like that study found, I believe that knowing the ending of the story might actually make us love the story more. And so I'm going to read through the text as I preach, but I want to go ahead and read it all together just to get some of these images into our mind. So Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning. I pray that you would expand our imagination as we look at this text. And may seeing the ending of this story help us to love it more. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want to observe about this passage uh, is, is that endings matter not only in the way that they transform our experience, as I was just talking about, but they also matter in that they happen at all. Uh, bringing a story to a particular end means something. Uh, I was in theater in high school and studied some theater stuff in college, and I remember encountering this strange play, Waiting for Godot. Uh, if any of you are familiar with it, it's two characters that talk to one another, and they're both waiting for this mysterious Godot character. And that's the tension that the whole play rides on. Godot never comes. And so you sit, watch this play for an hour, and it never resolves. Um, so endings matter, and that they even happen at all, right? 
Um, and so in this text, we can see that life is not moving toward a purposeless nothing, but rather toward this beautiful and meaningful end. There, there is an ending coming. God does not leave his work unfinished. I mean, how many of us have books that we've started but never finished? Or maybe half-painted walls in a supposed guest bedroom? Half-constructed projects out in the garage? Or how many of us have ever felt given up on? Have felt the disappointment of being let down? Or felt the betrayal of unkept promises? We've all been scarred by unfinished business, by disappointment and betrayals. And we're, we're also guilty of leaving things unfinished, starting things and never finishing them, guilty of, of half-hearted endeavors, half-hearted faith. The good news of this passage is that God does not leave things unfinished. God will redeem the world. And God has grace enough to cover the things that we have done and left undone. The things that we have started and left unfinished. His faithfulness to finish can heal our wounds and our brokenness. And we can trust what it says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. And so what kind of end are we looking towards? God will bring this to an end, is bringing this to an end. What, what does that look like? So I'm going to walk us back through the text again, just uh, one, one phrase at a time. And uh, I think I have them in, in the slides again. So we can just put one verse up at a time as we're looking through it. As we look through the text, I'm going to mention some of the other places we've been throughout this series, uh, because the ending recalls the beginning and the middle. Um, as well as other places through the biblical story, because the ending draws all of this together. So in verse 1, it begins with this phrase, Then I saw, and I'm going to pause there and make a note about the several verses here, because many of the verses uh, have this theme, um, beginning with either then I saw or then I heard. Um, redemption is not just this intellectual idea. It's not just something to be explained and talked about. Um, it's something that in this passage is seen and heard. Redemption is felt and experienced in the fullness of our, our whole being. Redemption is not just uh, for our minds. It's for broken hearts. It's for hungry stomachs. It's for pain and sickness. This is what redemption is, and this is what we're going to be looking at. So... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now this, this heaven and earth phrase simply means everything. Everything is going to be made new. Nothing will go untouched by God's redemption. So in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, they proclaim, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, declaring God's word to all things. 
It says in Colossians that by his death on the cross, Jesus reconciled all things in heaven and things on earth. And here we see a new heaven and a new earth. It's the culmination of all of these moments throughout the story. And it's the fulfillment of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This image is not a whisking away from the earth into heaven, nor is it simply a revolution on the earth that brings about something new, um, but rather it is a renewal of both heaven and earth. It reminds me of the hymn, This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. This is the renewal of how things will be with heaven and earth. They'll be joined together. And so the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What in the world does that mean? Like, this is, this is bad news for us in the Northwest. We love the sea. Like, we love the ocean. What's going on here? Um, so I want to recall and highlight, so Revelation, where this comes from, is written by John uh, while he is in exile on the island of Patmos. And so very personally for him, the sea is what stands between him and his community. So the declaration, there will be no sea, for John means being restored to community. And I think for us means that divisions that exist between us will go away. That there will no longer be division and strife in our relationships, in our societies, that things will be set right. But it also means something quite cosmic in many ways. A few weeks ago, Summer talked about a theology of water, if you remember that, if you were here. And so uh, just a quick review, at creation, the waters were the formless void that God ordered creation from. And then in Noah's day, the waters are what brought judgment and destruction upon the earth. And then after the Exodus, the waters are what stopped the people of Israel from their freedom until God paved a way through it. For the disciples, the waters are what threatened to overturn and sink their boat until they woke Jesus up and he said, peace be still. And the waters stopped. In each of these instances, the chaos of the waters were held at bay by the grace of God. But here, in the end, the chaotic sea will ultimately be vanquished. It will not only be held at bay, It will be no more. The sea will be no more. There will be no threat or fear of flood and destruction. The time of judgment will have passed. And the time for flourishing will have arrived. So let's keep reading about that flourishing. In verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There are a few things from this image of the city that I want to kind of highlight or point out. The first is that it is a city. So if we look back to creation, remember God created a garden, right? 
and he set humanity in it and gave them the command to cultivate and develop it. And uh, back six months ago when we were first starting this series, Mark talked about that. Uh, when we talked about creation, that our task as humanity is not merely to maintain creation, but to cultivate it, to develop it. And our cultivation has led to the development of cities, of industries, of technology, of art, of all these things. In the new heavens and the new earth, God does not remove our work, but rather redeems it. Our broken cities are made into this holy city. This has implications, right? Our work matters. The work that we do now has eternal significance. Designing infrastructure, refurbishing a cabinet, writing code, teaching students, balancing corporate budgets, changing diapers. The work that we do matters every day. God doesn't remove it, but rather redeems it. And although the work that we do now matters, it is not that work alone that will redeem the world. Because the image is not only of a city, but is a city coming down from heaven, right? So though God preserves and redeems the work that we do, it is God who preserves and redeems it. Our work has eternal significance because the Spirit of God has come down from heaven to fill the work that we do. And so what would it look like to grow more aware of the Spirit's activity amidst our daily work? What would it be like to cultivate a sense that this work is not only your own, but God's work through you? The other thing that that this uh, image kind of becomes is that the holy city is not actually a place, but a person or a people, right? It's a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And so again, a few weeks ago uh, in a a sermon on the church, uh, Mark said that it's not just a place where we go, but actually the people who we are. Remember, not welcome to church, but welcome church. This is true here as well. The city is not a place, but a bride. And she's heading toward her groom. We are that bride. And Jesus is that groom. What we have to look forward to is not a place, but a person. Though this picture of the heavens and the earth, descending cities and all of this is It's this cosmic, global picture. It is also intimately personal. Which the passage goes on to describe in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. This, this brings us back to the whole beginning of the, the New City Catechism, right? What is our one comfort in life and in death? That we belong to God? We will be his people, and he will be our God. 
This is the world as it was meant to be. There have been hints of this all along the way, right? God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. God showing his back to Moses. God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. God coming in flesh and the person of Jesus. And God dwelling with us now as the Spirit. But in the end, the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, will dwell with us. And notice that this ending, the world is not a place from which we escape, but rather the place to which God returns. This changes our perspective about everything. Our life is not ultimately about doing good work, being good people, trying to stop sinning, protecting ourselves from all the things that might get us. Rather, our life is about falling more deeply in love with Jesus. And consequently, if we do that, then many of those other things happen. In the end, the world is not some place from which we escape, but it's the place to which God returns. And look at what this return is going to be like. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Let this sink in. It's the words of the song that we just sang. And often when we sing about heaven... We, we remember these things. No more death or crying or, or pain. These are the things that plague us. And what a hope it is and a comfort to know that these are only momentary afflictions. This is something that we often reflect on when we think of heaven. And it's well worth reflecting on. But as I was reading the passage this week, there's actually, it's that first phrase, that first uh, sentence of this passage that stood out to me. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because though heaven is a place where there will be no crying, it is first a place where our tears will be tended to. Heaven is not some divine eternal pacifier that just stops the crying, Right? It is a place of deep healing, intending to the pain and the tears that we have endured. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, which means that God knows every tear that we've cried, every pain that we've faced, and every grief that we've mourned. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This passage is that day of great comforting that is coming. The day when God himself will hold you in his arms and wipe away every tear. And this picture tells us two things. It says everything is going to be okay. There's no need to cry. And yet, at the same time, it says it is absolutely okay to cry. 
I got you. This is what we have to look forward to. And so finally, in in verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This sums up everything that we've read this morning. God is making all things new. All things are going to be touched by God's redemption. Our work, our relationships, our lives, our pains, our tears, everything will be redeemed. It will all be made new. Ultimately, God is going to renew everything, but not replace everything. Okay, this is different from how we usually function, right? Whenever we have something that breaks or wears out, we usually just throw it out and go buy a replacement, right? Like, that's kind of just how things work in our culture, in our economy, and like that's just usually what we do. That is not the case with God. God doesn't throw out the broken He fixes it. He renews it. He restores it. It says that God is making all things new, not that he is making all new things. This shifts the way that we understand how we live. And so this morning, this this reminder that God is making all things new, if your faith feels old, or your hope feels low, let God make it new. If faith is something strange to you, maybe God's inviting you into something new. If your relationships feel worn out, marriages have grown tired, or if life just feels a little bit old and stale, let God make it new again. There's coming a day when we will no longer grow old, tired, weary, or bored. Because God is making all things new. And so as we look to this ending that we've read through this morning, what kind of life does it call us into? What does it invite? Does it spoil the ending? Or does it make you love the story even more? If we know there's coming a day when all things will be made new, when we will be with God and he will wipe away every tear, what does it look like to live with that kind of hope? What kind of peace might we have amidst daily anxieties? Or what kind of courage might we have amidst fear? What kind of love might we live instead of giving up? As we go to the table this morning, I want to remind us of the love of Christ and the faithfulness of God. That each week, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. God is making all things new. Amen.